everybody. Welcome to The Squad Room, the podcast devoted to creating and optimizing a healthy and fulfilling life for first responders all around the world. I'm your host, Garrett Tesla. I'm a sergeant for a sheriff's department in Southern California, and I talk to experts in a variety of fields looking for those force multipliers that I can apply to my own life. Now, my goal here is to help make you and me happier and healthier so we can all pursue our challenging careers with energy, clarity, and a commitment to our oath. Our guest today is Kevin Flake, an amazing guy, former Green Beret. You won't believe the story that he's about to tell with us, and I'm really excited to get to his story uh, here in just a second. Now, I want to remind you, if you aren't involved uh, with our mailing list, you can do that right from the palm of your hand. Text The Squad Room to 44222 to get signed up for our mailing list right there. And of course, if you like what you hear at the end of the show today, if you haven't already, please leave us a review on iTunes. All right, so our guest today, Kevin Flake. Uh, Kevin got introduced to me through another listener of the show, and uh, I got an email like, "You got to hear this guy's story." And he gives me a little brief rundown of it. He says this guy's a speaker. Uh, he's he's got um, the guy went uh, former Green Beret uh, went through uh, MIT and Harvard Business School at the same time. And has this cr- crazy story about uh, survival and life and attitude and perspective. And it was a great conversation. It was so awesome. Um, super humbled to have him on the show. He's doing a lot of great things for uh, wounded veterans. Uh, you know, we talk on the show about how connected law enforcement and uh, the military are, how first responders are interwoven with that, and especially nowadays, how important it is to learn from each other. Super supporter of, of law enforcement, Kevin was, and he was kind enough to spend a lot of time with us. We had a great conversation, and I'm going to get to it right now. Here's our guest, former Green Beret, Kevin Flake. Kevin Flake, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you very much, Garrett. I really appreciate you having me on here today. So uh, we were talking right before uh, we hit record here that um, how we came to uh, get introduced, but it was through uh, uh, a listener of the show who turned you on to this show. And when I had uh, put out there and asked for some people to, you know, share some experiences, your buddy was like, dude, you've got to get this guy on. And uh, I was like, okay, cool, yeah, sounds like sounds like a pretty pretty crazy story. And then I think he goaded you into emailing me uh, a little bit of your your story. And I was like, yeah, I, I want to talk to this guy. <laughs> I want to I want to hear this up front, and I want to hear this uh, in person, as it were. I mean, in person as best as you can be when I'm in uh, Southern California and you're uh, in Boston. But um, you know, we'll get, I want to just go through your whole story because I want to ask questions as we go, because I think I'll, I'll learn a lot just learning about you. And I think that the audience will too. So, um, you know, where'd you, where'd you grow up and kind of describe just real briefly, like, um, what was your situation like growing up? Yeah. So I grew up in upstate New York in a little town called Stillwater, New York. I think one of the best places in the country to grow up. Uh, especially too, after everything that happened to me, to be able to have that support network, that town has been amazing to my family and I. Uh, I went to college around there, small liberal arts school, and then uh, decided to join the military uh, right after I graduated from college there. And what was like growing up? Did you have a big family, small family? Yeah. So I'm the oldest of three boys, and I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. Um, you know, my father started a series of different businesses until he finally um, kind of settled on one thing. And he really, you know, he and my mother installed some serious work ethic into the family and really let us know that we could literally have whatever we wanted in life as long as we worked for it. 
And so since it was a family business, we spent a lot of vacations, uh, you know, out working for him all the time. You know, I used to joke, uh, like I hated the summer because I'd have to go to work and the little league baseball field would be right next to it. So I could hear my friends playing while I was on break and I, I was in there working. Um, you know, my mother, you know, just installed this incredible work ethic also. And, you know, every day before we'd leave for school, she would say, you're a flake, you're an achiever. Um, you know, so she didn't, she chose her words wisely. You know, she didn't say you deserve anything, you're owed anything, mm-hmm. you know, you're an achiever. You got to get your butt out there and do some things. I like that, but no pressure from mom, right? Every day I'm leaving school. So. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember that too, growing up. I grew up similar uh, circumstance in terms of uh, like entrepreneurial family. And man, I remember uh, out there uh, hanging uh, hanging leaflets on doorknobs on resident residences, hanging those on a Saturday morning while everyone else was out playing because uh, dad had some hustle. So in uh, what, what was high school like? Did you play sports or what was your thing in high school? Yeah, so I had a very interesting high school experience. I went to an all-boys Catholic military school uh, called LaSalle Institute. That was in Troy, New York, and that's another place that I owe, uh, I think, a big portion of who I am today, my recovery, uh, just the man that I was, they taught me you know, say three main things at this place taught me like how to love God, how to love my country and how to be a man. So it was just this incredible, I did not like it when I was there. So don't get me wrong. We marched at gym class, a uh, very strict place. It's something looking back now, like very, very happy that I went to this place and it really formed, I think, the nucleus for myself as to who I am today. And while I was there, I, I played football and the cross, and I think that sports were also a very big developmental piece for me in terms of building up mental toughness and uh, just an attitude of never quitting. And then also sports was a very big and instrumental part of leadership development for me. What um... – what prompted your parents to want to put you in a, in a school like that? I mean, that sounds like a pretty, I'm trying to think of the Tom Cruise movie where the kids are, you know what I'm talking about? But like, um, no, I, I jokingly say it's because they hated me, but (laughs) it was definitely because, uh, they loved me Mm because it was quite the effort to, uh, you know, financially to go there. And then, you know, hour and a half round trip drives all the time to go there and, you know, made, let us play all the sports and activities we wanted to. So, um, you know, for, for my brothers and I, they just felt like that was the best fit, uh, for us there. And, uh, you know, looking back on it now, I definitely agree. I didn't so much agree from the ages of 12 to 18 that I was there though. Was your, uh, was your dad, did your dad have any military experience? So he didn't have any military experience, but every, uh, other person in my family, uh, you know, before that generation or before him had had military experience. So my family came over in the 1800s, you know, immediately started serving in the Civil War. Uh, my family had the oldest surviving uh, Civil War veteran state of New York and, uh, you know, with service in the Spanish-American War right on up to uh, the Korean War. So it's something that's instilled in the family. This isn't a, a like, out-of-right-field r- kind of move to to embrace the military ethos in your in your. No, family. I mean, so it... It really all started, uh, at, you know, at the, my whole life um, since my grandfather was a World War II veteran. That was just something, uh, you know, I, that was one thing that we always were watching in our house. It was like the History Channel. And, you know, we were watching World War II battles on Okinawa or Iwo Jima or D-Day landings, you know, as opposed to uh, like cartoons at our house. 
So that was uh, something that was fascinating to my family and I. And, you know, I went to this all boys Catholic military school and part of the, the curriculum was military science class. And so one day during military science class, we had to watch a video and it happened to be a Navy SEAL Hell Week training. And so, you know, this is the only time a Green Beret is going to come out and admit that, you know, they were inspired by <laughs> Navy SEALs, right? But when I saw that when I was 14, I, you know, half the class was like looking out the window. The other class was like, why the hell would anybody want to do that? And I'm like, that is awesome. <laughs> that is what I want to do with my life right there. And so that just got me fascinated with the military even more. So, and I couldn't shake the feeling of, you know, being in special operations was what I wanted to do with my life. And I went to, uh, when I was 17, we did a, my father and I did a D-Day uh, trip to our trip to Normandy, you know, just sitting on the, the cliffs of Point du Hawk that the Rangers had scaled with grappling hooks back in 1944. I was just like, this is, you've got to do this. Uh, and then a couple months later, 9-11 happened. And so to me, that was like something even more so that had to be done. And kind of during that time frame, I, I really thought that I would go to West Point. Like a lot of my classmates would go to service academies or do ROTC in college. Um, but by my junior year in high school, I was like, I cannot do this again for, uh, for college. And so I just figured I would, you know, try out ROTC, but I was playing uh, college football um, and it just didn't have an ROTC program. So that necessarily didn't last uh, too long in terms of, you know, me traveling to an, another campus to do that. And so I just figured out, oh, I'll just do OCS after college. But kind of in the, the first couple of years of, you know, I started college in 2002. I was there from 2002 to 2006. And that was when the invasion happened. So that's when like fifth group went into Afghanistan and the horse soldiers mm -hmm. and a Green Beret mission was really brought to the forefront again. So it was just so romanticized in my, in my eyes. And that's when a lot of like these books started coming out and, you know, instead of me uh, writing papers or doing the actual assigned readings that I should have been doing, I'm, you know, reading uh, chosen soldier and horse soldiers and all these other uh, special forces books. And I'm like, this is exactly what I want to do. Right. I, I want languages. I want to be embedded in cultures. I minored in Mandarin Chinese in college because I knew you had to learn a language at, uh, for the special forces. And, you know, I was like, this is, this is exactly what I want to do. So then the 18 x-ray program came around, um, which is the same program that like yesterday you've had on your show, like Aaron Baruga went mm -hmm. into special forces that way. Tim Kennedy went to the special forces that way. We've talked like you you just mentioned Aaron and and Tim and both mentioned that process of training through those or what it takes that 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 training that you go through. So I won't belabor that with you here. But um, what was it? You know, you you said that you were inspired by the Navy SEALs, but then you the the Green Berets were romanticized, and it was that idea of being embedded. What about like that approach? Did you like better than the maybe the the more traditional like like how we sometimes think of like the seals of the door or delta you know the the door kicking um gunfights and that sort of stuff where the, the green berets seem much more um cerebral if you were was there a difference or is there a difference or am i just totally off base or what was it no no i, I think um you know I, I think the important thing i always like to keep in mind is um you know people try to say like oh you know like 
Navy or berets, like the Army's Navy SEALs. It's you know, the um, they're they're all different. They all serve their purpose, right. and yeah. each unit is incredible at what they do. And you know, for me, when I just kind of took a step back and saw everything, I was fascinated with the learning the languages and embedding with the cultures and then going to combat with the guys that you trained and it's on you to train those guys. And so I, I the special forces, like the peace corps with guns. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I thought that I'm like, this is awesome. I can do, I can do all of this in mm-hmm. one fell swoop here. So you go through training, you get assigned to a group. Where, where did you get assigned? So I, I was assigned to the uh, first special forces group out in Fort Lewis, Washington. Also where our guest and friend Aaron Baruga was, was assigned for some time. Uh, did you guys know each other? Yeah, no, I, the name was very familiar to me. Um, I definitely heard of him quite a bit. I think at that time, the deployment schedules were just so hectic that you started, you know, being very difficult to know anybody outside of your team. Yeah. I, you guys are there. You're about, you're about the same age. So, um, you kind of ran at the same time. How big, how big, uh, is a group? I mean, how many people are we talking about in that group? How many different teams? Um, well, so like a special forces company is 12, uh, or I'm sorry, six, 12 man teams, um, with a seventh, uh, like a support element in there and like the company for the call it would be the B team, mm-hmm. um, that, that supports those six ODAs. And then within each company, I'm sorry, within each battalion, there's three companies, and when I was in, for the most part of the time, there was three battalions, and then they added a a fourth battalion. Mm-hmm. So, not uh, not sure, you know how how it's structurally changed. Left 2013. But yeah, it's a good good group, good size group of people. Okay, so uh, you know the the um, remind me again where first you know each Green Beret element or ODA or, uh, mm-hmm. or group has a designated area of specialty, right? And if I remember correctly, first special forces is is Latin America or South America? Is that right? Uh, so first special forces group is the is uh, Asia group. Asia, okay. Um, but I'm correct, right? That in general, the theory is is that there's a, each each there, uh, group has a specialty or a, a geographic specialty. Is that right? Yeah, so each group has their specialty. Uh, you had mentioned South America. That's uh, seventh group. Uh, third group was uh, Africa. And tenth group, uh, Europe, Africa. Fifth group, the Middle East. And then there's two National Guard units, 19th and 20th group. But then, of course, with you know kicking off two different wars, they, they pretty much pull everybody in, and you, and you, get, uh, you get sent off on several deployments, some to Asia, though. And, and what you've talked with Aaron about is that uh, – you did a tour in the uh, in the Philippines, and how that often gets left out of the uh, the conversation about how often guys are getting sent to the Philippines on missions, and how important that area is, and how destructive that area is. Um, what was your, is, yeah? Was I that think your... one of the things. Sorry, go ahead. Um, I think one of the things that's lost on people quite a bit actually is just kind of how global the conflict is, right? Yeah. Uh, Afghanistan, Iraq are front and center all the time. You know, however, the Southeast Asia area where where first group was was doing a lot of work, you know, there was definitely a lot of terrorist groups in that area. There, there are Thailand, Indonesia, Philippines, mm-hmm. and so my my first deployment was Philippines. It was a you know a two month training mission there, but it was a great way to you know have that first taste 
of the special forces, what it would be like to be in a semi-permissive environment and to get my feet wet to go to Afghanistan basically four months later. So you, you, you finished that first tour in the Philippines and you're off to Afghanistan. Um, you may not be able to tell us where, but uh, any details that you can provide about that first tour? What, I mean, how long it was, and when? What you? What was your? Yeah. What was your mission there? Yeah. So, you know, backtrack. I, I found out when I was in the Philippines that I was going to Afghanistan, and you know, for me, like this is my life goal, right? To be a Green Beret, not to go to Afghanistan. And so, when I found out that I was going to Afghanistan, I found like I, I just like had won the Super Bowl, like is I in my the Olympic athlete that had trained his whole life and now it's time to go compete to see what you're made of. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I was just ecstatic to be able to go and, uh, and take part in this, but also just so incredibly nervous that I don't think I slept for like two or three weeks before I even went on the deployment, you know, kind of questioning myself if I was, uh, if I was ready to go, right. If I was going to really be able to go when my teammates depended on me when the situation uh, was pretty rough. So we left, uh, we left in January of uh, 2010 and it was ended up being a seven month deployment. And I was in Kunduz, Afghanistan. Uh, it's recently been in the, in the news quite a bit. There was the uh, doctors without borders incident there. And, uh, the city has been kind of going back and forth to the Taliban there. The mission set that we had on that deployment was a uh, really incredible one that I feel very fortunate to have been able to take part in was uh, we were training the Afghan commandos and the Afghan commandos are essentially modeled after Ranger battalion. And I will say that's kind of where the similarities ended right there. <laughs> um, the com- great group of guys. The um, commandos don't lead the way. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, you know, it depends <laughs> if, if there's not a gunfight going on, then yeah, they'll feel free to lead the way. But uh, if, once the bullets start flying, typically they look to, to the nearest Green Beret to, to lead the way. Um, but, you know, it was a really, uh, really interesting experience to be able to work with these guys, to be completely immersed in another culture, to just have your world completely turned upside down, to see the problems that they were facing on a daily basis and to try to make them into more efficient fighting force. And then um... – you, you finish that deployment, and then you come back, and, and eventually you get sent off on your second one. How how big of a time gap did you have between the two? Yeah, so when you know I said uh, it, it got so hectic, we we barely uh, barely knew the guys outside of our team. We got home on a Friday in August, and you know, keep in mind, like I think it's it's tough for people to understand sometimes. Like two weeks before days, but we came home. You know, our team was in like a 10 hour firefight and then the next thing you know, we're on a, on a, uh, on a helicopter or on a, on a bird back to the States. And, you know, we get back on a Friday, um, you know, go home pretty late that, that like into Saturday morning and come back to work on a Monday and get told we're going back to Afghanistan in seven months. And it's kind of like a very shocking thing to hear. And then a couple of weeks after that, we found out that we were going back to Afghanistan. You know, we found out that we would be going to Thailand for two months uh, or about a month and a half of training and that we'd have two separate train ups for Afghanistan. And then that the, the, the deployment next deployment was going to be 11 months rather than seven months. So my team would end up spending 18 out of 24 months in Afghanistan. 
uh, you know, my company mm-hmm. would, would, would spend the same amount of time. And, you know, in between doing like the Thailand and the, uh, and the train ups, I think, you know, some of the guys on my team are home maybe for three or four months in two years. Uh, and did you have, or were you married at this time or uh, kids or anything like that? So, yeah, my wife and I have been together since we were 18 years old, actually. First couple of weeks of our freshman year of college. She uh, lived above in the dorms and, you know, saw beauty and was like, I need to make sure that this person doesn't get away. <laughs> and, you know, luckily we, we have been together ever since. We got married when we were 23 and she has been with me every step of the way. So, you know, she went through all of the training. She moved across the country from uh, Boston over, you know, over here to, or to near or Tacoma, Washington, really only to have me be gone like nine out of a month. Yeah. And so she, uh, has put, put up with quite a bit. And as we further progress into the story, you will hear even more how much she, uh, put up with. Yeah. So you leave on that second deployment it's scheduled to be 11 months. Tell me about, yeah. t- tell me about, um, maybe just what, what your mission was then, but also then what, what transpired that cut your deployment short? Sure. So we, uh, we went back and we had the same exact mission, actually. And we went back to the same exact location, um, which really was a blessing in disguise because it felt like we had, hadn't even, you know, felt like we took like a long weekend away, basically. <laughs> and so all of these guys that we had spent seven months with in the past deployment you know, gotten into some really good gunfights with them, built up a lot of trust with them. You know, we were able to really slide back into that and day one deployment kind of hit it on all cylinders again. And this was 2011 when we went back. And when we had initially went there in 2010, you know, Kunduz, Afghanistan is practically in Tajikistan. And so we were at the end of the supply line. And at that time in 2010, there wasn't a lot of people that thought that a war was really necessarily taking place in northern Afghanistan. So there wasn't a lot of uh, assets devoted to the area. You know, most effort was concentrated in the south. So it made for a very austere 2010 deployment in terms of assets to run missions, assets to build a base. Uh, you know, we had to build two bases there and really did not have a great uh, supply line up there. But by 2011, you know, we things had really changed quite a bit. And I think that the threat was very much realized as to what was going on in Northern Afghanistan. So we had, you know, people to help us with our base, um, all the supplies we needed, helicopters on demand at all time. So we could actually really go out there and run like an efficient, uh, you know, an efficient strike force. We could do the raids, we could do the movements to contact, we could actually have this unit operate like they were supposed to modeled after Ranger Battalion. So the, but with that, I, you know, what that really necessarily also meant too, was that, you know, we would be, I would say conceivably putting ourselves in even more danger. We have more assets, more is expected of us. And, you know, we have more of an ability to fly around Northern Afghanistan and to hit targets. So the, the mission changed basically just because of the amount of support that we were getting on all, all the different levels. And about seven months into the deployment, this is actually coincidentally, um, my contract was was up after the deployment, and it was a great experience, and I really loved it. You know, I, I was open minded to staying in, but 
I, it was just so much on my wife and I, and with these like back to back deployments, you know, with spending three months at home in, in two years, I, I kind of saw my, my marriage uh, disintegrate and before the deployment that I was going to get out of the military. And so I could have conceivably left the deployment early um, and, and came home and ended my contract. And, you know, that would have been that. But on a 12 man team, I found it impossible to leave my guys in, especially when they're sustaining some pretty heavy combat. So I, I extended my contract to finish the deployment with them. And as no good deed goes unpunished, right when I extend my contract, it's, it's kind of when uh, my, my injuries took place. So let's talk about let's talk about how that all transpired. What was that day like, and what um, what was what were you setting out to do that day that um, caused you to you know to get into this into this firefight? Yeah, so this is seven months into this deployment. I mean, you know, we are just a well-oiled machine at this point, doing some really great work and have a lot of trust built up with these guys. The progress that the Afghans showed on the second deployment is just remarkable. And say, you know, one of the proudest things I was ever able to be part of in my life. And so on this day of September 25th, 2011, we were doing a lot of work in northwestern Afghanistan in Faryab province. And we had a, a mission to do a, a valley clearing operation. So basically what would happen is we would get dropped off at one end of a valley and we would clear through it. And what that would mean is that we would go through the series of villages along the way. We would talk to all the villagers, trying to figure out what was going on, if there was any Taliban in the area. And then at the same time, we'd search the whole village to see, look for weapons caches and for individuals that we thought were hiding out in the village. Once we got to the end of the valley, we would get picked up and, these missions would typically last from anywhere from like one to three days. And on this particular day, so, so this is something we, we had done quite a bit at this point. Um, and we knew that it was going to be a bad area uh, based off of like, you know, we had been, been to the surrounding villages. Uh, but it's something that we had, had been doing quite a bit on that deployment. And so, you know, on this particular day, we land uh, right before the sun comes up and then we start clearing the village and about one hour into the, the clearing operation, one of the guys on my team and his squad of Afghan commandos, a squad is about 10, 10 soldiers, they come under uh, a near ambush. And a near ambush is, you know, you are practically point blank range getting shot at. And luckily, only I think two of the commandos had gotten shot in this near ambush, which is a miracle. And... You know, they started trying to suppress the fire, the, the calls to the radio, everything flares up, you know, the, the, the fight is, is picking up quite a bit. Um, and we were able to call in some airstrikes and kind of thought that was going to be it. That was the excitement for the day. And we were just the next 48 hours clearing, slogging through the village. But, you know, right after the, the bombs dropped, the, the fight started picking up again. And so... For the next 10 hours or so, we pushed through this valley, which was about like a kilometer wide. On each side of the valley, they had these these mountaintops, or I'm sorry, like ridgeline mountains that kind of encased the valley. It was September. The valley was still very green, very lush. 
and it looked almost like this valley was carved to fight out of. <laughs> and, you know, here's us going to this valley for the first time. And then here's the enemy who's probably was born in this valley and knows every inch of this valley, like the back of their hands. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we went back and forth trading blows throughout the day, you know, highs and lows. Um, uh, it's not like the movie Black Hawk Down all the time. You know, you'd be out of ammo in five minutes if it was. Right. Um, so, you know, definitely some highs and lows in the fight. And in the 10th hour, I found myself on this rooftop and there was a dry riverbed that had, was separating the valley. It was almost like this natural demarcation line that we could separate it between west and east. I was on the western side of the valley on the, uh, on, on the rooftop trying to, uh, you know, survey the land and had uh, my machine gun team up there to provide cover for the eastern element. And we would basically go through the whole day just bounding forward like that. And then we had our snipers and mortars on the ridge lines to provide overwatch for us. And so in the 10th hour, the fight's picking up and we're taking a lot of fire from a building and the open field. The building's in this, in this open field. And my teammate on the eastern side, uh, we didn't have any air on station at this point. You know, he volunteered to take his squad to cross the open field to take the building down. And as soon as he went to do that, I, I thought, oh, well, I'll just stand up on this rooftop and draw fire to me because I feel like I have less of a chance of getting shot. And hopefully we can take some heat off of him. And started, and I stood up and started walking around on the roof. And then teammates of mine had very similar inclinations. They were waving around a VS-17 panel, which is like a very bright orange and pink panel to try to draw attention to them, to try to deflect attention from our teammate and the Afghans crossing the the open field and the tactic worked great worked better than we wanted it to <laughs> it, the you know as soon as I started walking around bullets start ripping past my head landing at my feet you know can hear the crack the whiz feel it go by um, and my teammate gets into the uh, into the building clears it that actually wasn't where we were taking the fire from um, but, you know, for some reason, I'm still walking around on this roof and my team sergeant calls me and tells me uh, with a very profanity laced radio call to get off of that roof. And I, uh, I, I looked at soldiers like, look, if, if we don't get off this roof, we're going to get shot. And these guys didn't speak any English, but they knew exactly what I said because it was the fastest I had seen those guys move in two years. <laughs> and so they, they flew off the roof. I was the last person off. I went around the corner of the building. And I realized we were really taking some concentrated fire from it, this, this part of the dry riverbed that had a lot of foliage in it. And it was, we were downward slope to get there. And so I went around the corner of the billing and my squad was a little disheveled at that point. I wanted to get everybody together and I wanted to start to move online to take out this position. And I stood at the corner of the building for a couple seconds just to survey like what would be the best route to take. And a couple seconds in a firefight is, well, it's just a couple seconds too many because all of a sudden I felt like somebody came up and hit the stomach with a sledgehammer and lifted off, it was lifted off my feet, suspended in the air. And while I was suspended for those microseconds, you know, I thought to myself like, wow, I think you just got shot. And then as my, I slammed off the ground, I was like, oh yeah, you definitely did just get shot. So you're, you're, uh, 
you you just been shot. You're you know laid out, and what has to happen next in order for you to be able to be sitting here having this conversation with me? What's that? What what went through your mind first of all, other than I just got shot, um, but also the process of of trying to get you out of that in the tenth hour of a of a wicked fight. Yeah, the um, so I, I think that the first thing, um, you know, it it I, it was all very a natural like reaction at that point. Um, I called on the radio to let my team know, hey, I've just been shot. I'm at this location. I need help now. And I started myself medically. You know, I, I credit the special forces training with saving my life and saving so many other lives on so many different occasions. And this, this case was none the different because, you know, I had practiced this thing hundreds, maybe thousands of times throughout the training and throughout the trainups for the deployments and in the downtime and the deployments so that when it actually came down to that moment mm-hmm. and raising my heart rate, maybe my blood starts pumping a little bit faster and, you know, makes the situation worse. I, I was relatively calm and was able to start to do the medical treatment process to call my teammates to let them know where I was. But when I did the, the treatment process, I was feeling up my leg because I felt this great pain go down my leg. And when I, so when I got shot, it hit my femoral nerve. And just incredible pain down my left leg. And I thought that I had gotten shot in the leg. And so I had my tourniquet, like, you've got, saying to myself, you have a couple minutes to live. Because you just got shot in the leg and I probably hit your femoral artery. And I started padding up from my the bottom of my, my boots to see where the blood was, padding up the leg. And there was no blood in the leg or in the leg area. And I went all the way up to my neck where the pain you know, was also. And there was no blood there. So all of the bleeding was internal. So and after I had made the call and after I started trying to do self-treatment, I mean, there was really nothing I could do at that point. I couldn't walk. I could barely move. And at that point, I was just trying to keep myself conscious because I was in so much pain. A couple minutes went by, and they felt like a, a couple hours had gone by. I got back on the radio to call my team it's like, and let them know kind of with some urgency how, how dire the situation was. And they were desperately trying to get to me, but the, the fight had really picked up at that point. So those guys were pinned down trying to get to me. But when I got off of the radio the second time, you know, something happened that was very life affirming for me because, you know, at that point I'd spent almost two years in Afghanistan um, and was starting to really wonder what type of effect I was having on on the on the commandos. You know, why was I putting myself in, at risk all the time? So when I got off the radio the second time, though, that that was answered. I looked up and one of the guys that I've been training for two years like runs out. I'm in the open still laying on the, on the ground and he took me and dragged me behind uh, cover behind the building. Wow. Um, and at, at that point, once he got me there and my teammates started to flood in and guys immediately started working on me and I could hear people going up to my senior medic and saying, Hey, you know, how's Kevin doing? Is he going to make it or not? And the, the medic said, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It looks pretty bad. Now, uh, those guys didn't know at the time, but I could hear them the whole time that they were having <laughs> these conversations with the medic, right? So it's great to joke about now, but at the time, you know, that coupled with guys coming up to me 
with tears in their eyes telling yeah. me that they loved me and that everything was going to be okay. Oh, uh, guys who hadn't paid me a compliment in three years, I was like, wow, I think this is it. Like you've had a lot of close calls before, but this one, this is it. This yeah. is your final moments here like, on guys, this planet. He's like, guys, you're not helping. Shut up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, good gosh. So, you know, when I, I finally realized after I got shot that I was likely uh, on my deathbed, you know, kind of started really you know, processing in my mind. And I started asking myself quite a bit of questions, you know, questions that people don't necessarily ask themselves, you know, until they are on their deathbed when they're in their 90s. And, you know, I'd have to say that didn't necessarily like all of the answers that I had received back. Um, you know, asked myself questions like, you know, was I the man that I was supposed to be? Was I the husband that I was supposed to be? The brother, the husband? You know, did I live my life with the zeal that I had necessarily wanted to? And when I realized that the answer was no, um, it was probably the worst moment of my life. And so, you know, that really taught me an important lesson that you really can't take anything for granted. You can't take the next day for granted. You can't take the next second for granted. You can't take the next phone call for granted. What what was it, though, that you were, I mean, obviously this is a personal question, so you don't have to answer specifics, but, I mean, everything you've told me, you you know, you You've got a committed family. You've got a loving family, a supportive family, and um, a spouse who you have a. Uh, despite the fact that you're gone half the time, you have a, a a relationship with. What was it that you felt was lacking? Was there anything specific, or was there just an? Was it your attitude? What was it? So, it's kind of like a more a longer story, right? In terms of um, this was these were these were like the emotions that I had felt on my first deployment on this one time that I thought that I was going to get killed. It was, you know, I mentioned we got to a firefight for 10 hours before or, you know, or for like a 10 hour firefight two weeks before we went home, I got trapped on this hilltop and I, I had experienced this then and I hated the answers that I had gotten back. And it, like that was the worst moment of my life. So I, I was kind of like confusing two situations there for you. Sorry. Should have prefaced all of this before. Um, so I, when I got home, I was like, I have got to, to live my life. Like I'm going to die tomorrow because I'm going back to Afghanistan in seven months here. And there's a great possibility that this is going to happen. So I really made this effort, you know, this concerted effort to not take all these things for granted in my life. Um, and it was incredibly important so that when I did get shot like that and I was, you know, conceivably on my deathbed there, that it didn't feel as bad and as terrifying and as scary. Like I was sad, but in essence I was ready to die because I hadn't taken all those things for granted and learned that lesson there. I see. So on that second, it was so that first deployment. And then when you're actually there having been shot and having um, suffered what your friends thought was going to be a very likely fatal wound, you had some peace. Yeah. It's important, I think, for anybody. It's it's hard, I think, though, for anyone to who hasn't been in that situation to 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 have that perspective. You know, I think cops were were probably better than most because we know that things can be taken away in a heartbeat because we see it every day. You know, we see it someone who goes to work and uh, never comes home from you know because of a traffic accident or you know something else or that your your 
your health can be taken away from you because we're just constantly around those kinds of people, constantly being bombarded by people who have these things taken away from them. And so I think we're either hardened to it or we're more sensitive to it. One of the two. I think there's two reactions a cop can have to it. Um, I think I personally am more sensitive to it, and, and, and I come home after every shift thankful that I got I got through the shift, first of all, because um, I know that there's a good chance that someone out there in that in, in, in the United States or in the listeners who are listening to this didn't go home either because they got, you know, killed or because they're now in the hospital because they got hurt. But it's, it's, it's easy to just kind of be the guy who, who hasn't been in that situation, not on the deathbed and, and think, well, yeah, you know, you got to live every day. Like it's your last, but I also got bills to pay and, you know, the kids to pick up from school and lunches to make. And I mean, how do you, do you still have that same perspective now uh and is it just because it's you've had this history and been informed by this or is, do you have a daily practice of something that keeps you present for this yeah so i'm a big fan of routine um i think that that is like a huge a huge reason for like how a day is going to go for me the routine is followed it's going to go good if it doesn't get followed it's probably not going to go that well um you know 30 minutes of prayer meditation 5 a.m as soon as i wake up um, you know, work out really hard, follow pretty strict diet, you know, especially based off of everything that has happened to me. Um, and so things I think keep me pretty grounded and, you know, my, my fallacy was, you know, pre the first time I really thought I was going to die. And I had this, you know, deathbed conversation with myself and didn't like the answers was that, you know, I felt like I just always needed to put every single ounce of energy in exactly those goals. And when I did that, everything else fell to the wayside. Um, now, fast forward to you know learning that lesson and going forward in life, I realize you can still have these incredible goals and you can still have these incredible things, but you really need to take time out to um, to smell the roses, literally to you know smell the proverbial roses, um, and to be present in the moment so that you don't have that experience again. And one of the big things that I did was uh, meditation and learn that practice. And that was incredibly helpful you know, in that process there. What did you use? Because I've, we talk about this on the show and I've tried it several times. Or I mean, I've, tr- I've tried to start a practice several times. I've done it hundreds of times, but I've never been able to stick with it. Did you use a t- particular type of meditation or an a-, a different specific app or program or did you just start doing it? No, so that was, um, you know, when I decided to get off of my painkillers to study for my grad school exams, I was still in considerable pain. I still am, you know, large in pain every single day of my life. Um, but, you know, taking uh, painkillers just was not the uh, the most, you know, appealing thing going forward. So the, the psychologist at first group was doing a mindfulness meditation uh, workshop and asked me if I wanted to take part in it. Very reluctant at first, very reluctant to seek out any type of mental health, um, you know, in that aspect. Um of, you know, the meditation realm, but, uh, you know, went to the first couple sessions and found it to be a pretty useful thing, pretty painful actually at first, cause it really kind of quieted things in my life. And I was alone with my thoughts quite a bit, um, in this very trying period of my life, but, you know, I went through that workshop there and really was a game changer for me. Interesting. Huh. That's, that's fascinating. And then interesting that the, the special forces are, are employing, mindfulness and meditation in the in their recovery efforts yeah i think that program was kind of getting off the ground um 
back in 2012 when I was in. And I, I, I think it's gained some more, more steam. And I think that guys, the stigma around seeking out the mental health services is, is getting broken down on a daily basis. Um, another thing that I do attribute to, to my recovery. Yeah. And that's something we're, we're pushing for on this show is, is that's reducing that stigma and just by talking about it, you know, making it a little bit more okay. And I think, I think I agree. I think in law enforcement, it's the same way. There's a huge stigma behind it that is slowly being put, put away as we realize the benefits of it and the, and the detriments of, of not addressing it. So the, uh, the, the teammates stabilized me and, you know, they had to get to this, you know, to the helicopter landing zone. And so, of course, like the great teammates that they are, they're lying to the air crew, telling them the fight is like two kilometers away. And meanwhile, it's like 100 meters, 200 <laughs> meters away so that the helicopter will land for me. And, you know, to get to this point, though, they're going through like open fields, returning fire, receiving fire, carrying me on a stretcher. Um, so they, they load me onto the helicopter and that ride was about 15 minutes and you know, I remember. I, I remember actually everything. I remember every single bit of all this. I never blacked out. And coincidentally, one of the guys had their helmet camera running, so I have all of this on helmet camera also. Oh wow! Um, great. It was a great, great training tool for a lot of people. It was actually really good for me to watch it too. It's very cathartic. But um, once I get to the surgical tent, you know, people are are going around. They're crazy. Like. I, I, they seemed crazy to me. I was on a lot of fentanyl at that point, so they probably weren't crazy. I was the crazy one. Um, but you know, they start cutting off my uniform, asking me a series of questions, and then the surgeon goes, "Do you have any questions?" And I said, "Yes. Am am I going to to live or not?" And he's he's like, "I I, I don't know. I it looks pretty bad. We're we're gonna do what we can. You hang in there. Do you have any last requests?" And so I, I asked, "I need a I need a priest." to give me my last rights. And I, I wanted the bullet if you can save it. And I actually have the bullet with me like right now. Um, and so after I made these requests, he put the mask on me and I woke up in Germany about four days later. Holy cow. So what was your, your prognosis at, at that surgery or, or once you, once you woke up and, and then the diagnosis of what issues you were going to be facing? Yeah. So I, I was in, uh, I was there for probably about a week in Germany and the initial prognosis of everything was, you know, gunshot wound to the lower left abdominal. I had a laparectomy, which basically they cut my stomach open from the bottom of my sternum to below my belly button there. And the hit my colon, moved about 20% of my colon. You, you cut out there. Sorry. You hit bullet, what? Sorry. The, the bullet hit my colon. So they removed about 20% of my colon and they had my stomach, they kept my stomach open for a couple of weeks to continuously do wound washouts. Um, and the, uh, the, the, my hip was also fractured because the, the bullet had went through my, uh, went through my left hip. So I wasn't really able to put you know, any pressure on my leg and on my hip because of, you know, letting, letting the, uh, letting the hip heal. So we really weren't able to fully understand the true extent of all of the injuries initially. You know, after a couple of weeks of being in the hospital, I, I noticed that, like, you know, my left leg was paralyzed. It was not moving. It was not responding to anything. I would tell it to move, and it would not move. Um, after 
three to four months of physical therapy and rehab, that's when we really came to the realization that, you know, my femoral nerve had been hit and my leg was, was gone unless there could be some type of miracle intervention. My leg was starting to wither away to the point that it looked like an arm because the muscle was just dying on it. And uh, with that too, the, the damage to that nerve, was there still constant pain? Yeah. And there's not so much constant pain with the nerve. I got really lucky that the nerve pain wasn't too bad. I actually lost feeling in my left leg. Oh. It's, uh, you know, kind of like the, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. You know, it's like, there's no, it feels weird not having feeling. <laughs> I don't, I still don't have any feeling in my left leg. Um, so it wasn't necessarily constant pain from that. It was, I would say, more bodily pain from all of the injuries. Right. Having your stomach cut in is just an absolutely excruciating, <laughs> excruciating experience. And then keeping it, keeping it open. I mean, that recovery time, you, and I think you said you have 40 inches of scarring over you. Yeah, from all of the surgeries, over 40 inches of scars, um, you know, from the six total surgeries that I ended up having to have. So how many surgeries did you end up having total? Uh, six. Six. And then, um, but you've managed at this point, you've, you've kept your leg, correct? Or did, or did you have to have it amputated? No. So I was able to keep my leg luckily. Um, and I mean, you know, I was luckily able to keep it, but I was becoming increasingly worried about kind of what was going to happen because my leg, I'd tell it to move and it would just dangle there. Like I could, I had no usage of my quadriceps. So I had the usage of my hamstring, calf. So I had to learn basically how to walk in a different manner, in like terms of locking out my leg. Mm -hmm. But if I did not plant my leg correctly, I mean, it was it. I fell right over, and I had some serious injuries from falls, um, just from that. But the I, I did get to keep the usage of my leg, and I have full movement back in my leg because it was about four months after the initial injury. I was at University of Washington Neurology Clinic, and the lead neurologist that was there, he couldn't um, even read my MRI because there was so much damage in the in the MRI that he's like, there's really nothing I can do, and I don't really know many people that could do anything for this. Maybe you can try the Mayo Clinic. And so my physical therapist was there. Her name was uh, Anya Rapp. She's still there helping soldiers at the First Special Forces Group heal up. Just an absolutely incredible woman spent countless hours with me uh, she was there and she uh she called the mayo clinic and said this is what the case is and can you help this guy and they were like yeah you know what we're working on that here <laughs> and so the army took care of everything arranged for me to fly out there and met the surgeon and he said all right hey look this is what we're going to do it's very experimental we have no clue if it's going to work we're going to cut from the bottom of your ankle to three quarters of the way up thigh and we're going to take the sensory nerve out of there. We're going to cut your stomach open again. And we're going to cut through all the muscle. And we're going to graft that nerve in. And then maybe in six months to a year, you get connectivity back. And, and you can move your leg. Um, and so, you know, I was terrified with, of having to get another surgery, to, especially this extensive. Um, you know, I'd have to start all my physical therapy back from day one. But... And I'd have to go back on painkillers too, which, you know, was a very hard thing for me to have to get off of the, uh, the first, you know, series that I did after my, um, initial injuries. Mm -hmm. But 
you know, ultimately I just thought that if I didn't do this, if I didn't take this chance, then I would have to think about that the rest of my life. And, you know, if I didn't benefit from it, at least maybe somebody else would at some point in life. So we went ahead with the surgery. And when I woke up from that, I mean, I was in even more pain than when I had been shot and started the, the physical therapy process. And, you know, after three, four months, you know, could notice a slight twitch in the muscle. Um, three or four months after that, you know, could move my leg like an inch. A couple months after that, could move it six inches. A couple months after that, I, you know, I was able to get full extension. So almost a year later, and so I went from a guy measured his physical fitness and running like five miles and 300 pound bench presses to, you know, being able to move my quadricep and foot a couple inches. It's amazing though that they, they basically took a, they t if I understand you, they took a nerve from your leg and just put it into your, into your back or into your stomach. And that's, and then it, it grew back basically. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And so nerve growth back at about one inch a month if the, if the graft takes uh, successfully. So I was very fortunate that it did, but it was just such an incredibly slow uh, process that like, you know, every morning I would wake up and I would tell myself like, all right, like this is the day, this is the day that your leg is going to work. And I would try to lift it. And, you know, at the beginning, like 99.999% of the time that leg did not move, but, you know, I had to still get in slot with it every day with the hopes that maybe it would grow back. And when you, I felt that initial twitch and saw it, I mean, it was like, you know, that was probably the greatest athletic thing that had ever happened to me in my life. Cause I knew that the surgery took, yeah. and I knew at that point that, you know, it was going to happen. So were you still in uh, the military at this point? Were you still in the army? Did you have to stay in because of the injuries or did you, were you able to transition out and they just, yeah, I, care? I, Oh, sorry, you cut out there for oh, a second. No, just, um, were you still in the military? You said you were you'd, you'd re up to finish the contract or to finish the deployment, um, but did you have to stay in to get all of this treatment, or did they take care of you as a now a private citizen? Yeah, so I, I, you know, we had all kind of it was a very joint decision. Um, and the army, the first special forces group, was incredible about this. Uh, they were really like, stay in as long as you feel like you need to. Um, to, to get this type of care. I mean, the, the, the care that I had at the first special forces group was absolutely remarkable. The Seattle Seahawks came to see our facility and they were like, wow, this is better than ours. <laughs> uh, so I, I was, I was pretty lucky on that. And basically you know, the condition was so dire, like having to learn how to walk again, having to do, learn how to do things like put your socks on, mm -hmm. how to walk on stairs that, I mean, this was for me a full-time six hour a day job that I, I really delved deep into. So I, I wanted to be able to be in the position where I could have access to all that, have the support network of, of the special forces community, and then, you know, really kind of still, uh, you know, being financially supported also yeah. while I went through that whole process there. So they kept me on for, I was in for about another year and a half. And when I finally you know, made the decision, like, all right, I think that I'm at a point where I'm good enough to go out and really start the second part of uh, my journey, which will be the transition process. Yeah, so that's what I want to ask you now is, I mean, you mentioned earlier that getting into special forces was a life goal. And you said, you said like, you put it, you equated it to having, like, won the Super Bowl. So now this is obviously something that's taken away from you, and um, you're now forced into a transition 
was that a difficult transition for you or did you have something in mind that was that you were able to turn to right away? So I, even before I'd gotten injured, I had really wanted to use my GI bill to go back to graduate school to, um, to go to business school to get my MBA. And that was something that I had thought about a lot and would, you know, look up and research while I was on the deployment whenever I could just to kind of keep a light into the tunnel thing. And so the pursuit of getting my MBA also was served as a light at the end of the tunnel during my recovery process. Uh, almost as soon as I got out of the hospital the first time, my wife bought me a book called How to Get into a Top Business School. And, you know, after coming or, you know, after going to get my butt kicked for like six hours at physical therapy, I'd come home and tear that book apart and just kind of make these grand, broad, sweeping plans for the future. And that really kind of showed me, all right, like this is this is something you can keep working for here. Um, you know, th- that was derailed a little bit with having to get uh, this, the, that final surgery at the Mayo Clinic. Um, one of my teammates was killed. And so it kind of started to to push off a little bit. And it was the, I, so I was injured September of 2011 by the summer of 2000. You know, I was kind of starting to think about like, all right, I think it's, it's, it's probably ready to start thinking about the more seriously about the transition. I really need to pick this thing back up. I need to think about the business school aspect. And right around that time had a very important intervention from my wife. I was, still on painkillers from that experimental surgery and had gotten myself whittled down to like one or two, uh, you know, pills a day, which from initially coming out of the hospital, I think I was on like 24 different types of painkillers prescribed, which I mean, were very much needed at that point. Right. But you know, this is four or five months later and I'm still taking a couple a day. And you know, my wife was like, look, you know, is this going to be what the rest of your life is? And, you know, I would say, hey, I'm a disabled veteran. Like, it's just one, maybe two pills a day. And then she, well, next, it's two or three pills a day. And the year after that, it's three or four. And then it's four or five. And the next thing you know, you're addicted. And I don't know that I've ever been more mad at my wife. And, you know, with this, this experience has definitely tested our marriage quite a bit. Um, but I think I was, I was so mad at her because that's what I needed to hear. And it was the truth. Like, that was something I needed to finally, like, you know, really put the kibosh on before it became this big problem. And so I made the decision. I drew the line in the sand that like, all right, I would stop taking my pills on this day. And then the next day I need to start studying for my standardized tests for grad school. And I did that. And it was a very brutal first week of study for the, uh, for the standardized test one, because they're hard and I didn't remember anything. And two, I was, you know, basically giving myself off of uh, the painkillers. Trying but, to kick it. Yeah. You know. The, um, you know, that whole transition piece was what was keeping me going every day, keeping me going to the physical therapy, keeping my spirits up, knowing that, you know, this was going to await or this was something I would have at some point. Um, and so that's when I really started to, to pick up the idea to go to business school again. And I, I, I didn't think that I was going to even be able to apply for that year because you know, I, I couldn't sit for more than a half hour at a time. I did most of my studying in a, in a recliner for my standardized tests. Um, but on a trip back to Boston, um, I visited uh, Harvard Kennedy School and Harvard Business School. And, um, you know, my wife, we, we'd always talked about coming back here for grad school. And when I got home, she, my wife was, you know, once again, kicking me in the butt saying, like, why don't you just apply, right? 
see what happens this year. Who knows? You know, if you don't get in, then it's a mulligan. And so I applied to Harvard Business School, to the Harvard Kennedy School, and MIT Sloan. And I got rejected, you know, flat out at Harvard Business School. I got rejected at the Harvard Kennedy School, but I got waitlisted at MIT. And so as soon as I was waitlisted, I bought a plane ticket from Seattle to Boston, and I flew across the country and walked up to the admissions office unannounced and, and said, well, you know, what do I need to do to get in here? And luckily, three months later, I got in uh, and then reapplied to Harvard School and was able to get in the second time I applied. So just to recap, and because we have a bit of a clunky Skype connection, but I just want to emphasize this, even if we didn't have a bad Skype connection, you got into, I mean, Boston is known, of course, for having amazing universities and more than just the two you mentioned, but you got, you got in to both MIT and Harvard in the same year. And you went to both, right? Well, I mean, you know, I emphasize I say, that. <laughs> people keep people people keep making mistakes on me. Then I'll take them up on their offer. <laughs> I mean, I you know, I, I the the idea of doing a dual masters um, anywhere is overwhelming. I mean, my masters was nearly overwhelming, and it was certainly not Harvard. Trust me. Um, but to do two at such um, demanding institutions is, is it says a lot I think about what you I mean it sounds like the life you've led to this point informed your belief I mean you you said your mom every day told you you were an achiever and so was it ever an issue to you that you didn't think that you were absolutely 100% appropriate for Harvard and MIT or was it because you are an achiever and you know you can handle it does that make sense oh no it makes complete sense um so I definitely it on it was uh, you know the material for for any of those schools i still think that they made a huge admissions error and somehow they let me in um i mean i'll, I'll never forget like a couple days before i started school at mit i was walking to like a, a welcome picnic and I, my wife who was seven months at pregnant at the time um i was like this this, this is a mistake like i don't think i can do this like this is mit i can't yeah and um you know, it was very overwhelming, uh, very overwhelming for me. Um, but, you know, through the, the whole process, um, one of the things that I really felt like I think kind of drove me to recover as well as I did was that I, I didn't want people to think that I had peaked when I was like 25 or 26 years old. Um, I didn't want people to feel bad for me and say, oh, that flight, you know, he really had a great life going for him until he got shot and then it all went down the tube. So for me, I felt like I was like, I, I just have to try to go out and do like this ridiculous thing. And it was to, you know, I think to prove to myself that I could do it, but to prove to everybody else that, Hey, like, you know, I, I still got it. Things are good and I'm ready to push forward here. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, doing it for other people is one thing, but there, you can't, you can't go very far on that. Right. I mean, you can't, you can't get through two, master's degree programs at those universities or, you know, special forces selection on, on the motivation of others. There's got to be something within, within you. Right. And so it, it seems like you're, you're just a real driven guy and you've, you've moved, you know, I asked you earlier about that transition from having that, that vision and that goal of getting into special forces to then, um, school and you've finished school now. Um, and you're on a new mission. I mean, you you have your day job, um, 
which um, you, you just started, but you know, talk to me a bit about um, Wounded by War and what your goal is uh, with that project. Yeah, so uh, WoundedByWar.com is a blog that I started uh, in the spring of 2013, and that was uh, something that is my recovery was, and it was absolutely brutal. Um, you know, I, I felt like it was going pretty well and I felt like a, you know, a big reason for that was I had such a supportive wife and family and friends and, you know, town I grew up in. Um, and I realized that a lot of other guys didn't have that support. So I wanted to be able to, uh, I wanted to be able to start a, a website that was just kind of, you know, me going out there and talking about my experiences to try to inspire other guys, you know, to let them know that, you know, I went through very hard times, but you can still kind of, you can come out on the other end that there is this light at the end of the tunnel. And another reason for, for starting that project was the, the whole process of coming back of, of healing from these injuries, the physical and mental nature of, uh, you know, being a part of some pretty intense combat. Um, it, I, things have turned out very well for me. And I think a large reason for that is I've always been willing to talk about everything. Um, there's been no topic that has ever been off limits to anybody talk about my military experience. And I think for me, some people view that maybe as uh, bragging and I, I try to not portray in that at all. But I think that has been a huge reason as to why a lot of problems didn't take root and manifest themselves. Uh, because I've always been willing to, uh, to, to really, to talk about this. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like if I was very open in this forum with my emotions and my feelings about combat, about how scared I was, about how uncertain I was about what it was like to kill another human being or see dead bodies and children without legs, then I would, my hope was that other people would also be willing to maybe do that, seek help and be able to live an even better life. You know, it strikes me too that your your personality, you just strike me as a very positive person and um, an optimist. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it, just talking to you for the last hour or so, it seems like your mindset is, is geared towards positive things. Um, the way you even talk about the missions you were being sent into Afghanistan for in the, in the, in the, in the civilians or the citizens there and um your teammates and all that your mind so i mean would you consider yourself a, more of an uh, an optimist or uh, are you a pragmatist uh, uh an idealist what, <laughs> what what's that <laughs> mindset that got you through all this got you to have the guts to apply to both harvard and mit what what is that well you know i i'll say one thing is that uh you know a big lesson that i learned is embrace failure right and I've realized like if I'm not failing, then I am not reaching high enough. So, you know, I, I had no problem applying to those schools and getting rejected. Well, I did, you know, but it hurt personally, of course, as, as a failure always does. Right. But, uh, you know, I would say I'm definitely an optimist and, you know, I think that I know that I'm capable of doing a lot of extraordinary things. I know other people are capable of doing extraordinary things. And I think that that's kind of, one of the main focuses now of doing that website, the woundedbywar.com and doing uh, speaking engagements and the book that I'm writing um, is to be able to bring that out and, and everybody else so that they can be incredibly resilient 
and go out and live the best lives possible. When's that book going to be available? Well, so I didn't think that I had enough going on at grad school um, <laughs> with the two masters and two kids. Uh, so I decided to write a book too. Um, so I, I spent my last year and a half of grad school writing the book and I think it really turned into more of a catharsis, uh, really just working through a lot of things, talking very much in detail about battle scenes and things like that. Um, and so I wrote about 400 pages at grad school and right now in the process of, uh, you know, really kind of going through and reformatting it to the original book that I intended on writing, which would be. You know, basically, like, here's the lesson that I learned. Um, this is how I learned it. This is the application for your life type of book rather than more of the memoir format that I have right now. So a lot of the materials out there, I think that that was part of it to, to get that going. But uh, that's my long story for saying that there'll be a, there's no set date on it and it'll probably be a thousand pages and maybe check back in 30 years. <laughs> well, whenever it is, please let us know because we want to uh, support that and promote that. And we do a lot of uh, book talking about books on the show so would love to include that in there um you know the show is obviously um for i say first responders but the majority of the people who listen to this are either in law enforcement or want to get into law enforcement and there's always a lot of parallels between uh, military service and um service in law enforcement is there anything um specific that you have for the audience that you want them to know or that you want them to understand from uh, either your perspective at, uh, from the military or uh, now as a as a civilian working in the private sector. Yeah, so the you know I, I kind of have a, a you know a couple things to share on that. Please, you know, law enforcement officers, first responders, the military. Um, I remember I heard Tim Kennedy say it on your show. There is no more noble uh, calling out there, and I would definitely agree with that. Um, it's an incredible. It's an incredible thing that people decide to do. And, you know, people that, that provide just such an incredible service to this country. And, you know, the one thing that I would just say is in, in regards to that in the practical, tactical sense is uh, take your training as seriously as possible. Treat it like it's life or death. Um, you know, Tim Kennedy always says, to, you know, be the hardest guy to kill. Right. Mm -hmm. Like you want you would really want to live up to that. So that when you're in that moment and you get shot in the stomach, like you are not panicking, you are doing exactly what you've trained for thousands upon thousands of times. And the training that I received in the special forces course was incredible. I, I thought though at points that my instructors were just these crazy sadists, they like were hell bent on destroying me and loved watching me suffer. But then when I got to Afghanistan, I mean, I was in situations that were so intense. I found myself thanking God that I had gone through such intense training because if I hadn't, then I would have quit on people when they needed me the most. So I could never emphasize the practicality of training um, and the intensity at which you should train it needs to be 100% at all times. Um, and then secondly, you know, when I was in Germany and I was in the uh, hospital there at I had my stomach cut open. I had tubes hanging out of me. I had all of this just emotions. I had just been in Afghanistan and, you know, I was in this hospital. I really wasn't sure completely what was going on. Um, so one of my friends luckily was there and he, almost a year to the day, he'd gotten hit with two grenades and had gotten shot. And he came in to see me. It was just a remarkable thing to see this friendly face from first group. 
And after a little small talk, you know, he looks me straight in the eye. And even though I have my stomach cut open, I just been shot a couple of days later. He looks me straight in the eye. gives me the best advice I've ever gotten in my life. He says, Hey, look, plenty of people have been shot. Don't be a fucking pussy about this. <laughs> and it was, you know, the exact thing that I needed to hear at that moment. I didn't need to feel sorry for myself, you know, because so many other people had had so many other problems, right? So many guys that I knew had been killed, you know, had been burnt from head to toe, had lost their limbs. And I was just lucky to be alive at that point. And that, that mentality got me from September 25th, 2011 to February 28th, 2017 to, you know, to today. Um, because no matter how bad that it got, I always knew that I was very lucky to be in whatever position I was in. You know, I might be in constant pain, but, you know, I'm in constant pain going to MIT or Harvard or, you know, my new, my new role at Goldman Sachs. Um, you know, I might be in constant pain, but, you know, I have my family. I might not be able to run marathons anymore, but, you know, at least I have my life. And so always taking that mentality and taking a step back and thinking about that, I think will serve folks very well in that community and just in general. Fantastic. Kevin, where can people find out more about you? You mentioned woundedbywar.com. Um, yes. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, what, 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 where are uh, you? Yeah, so I, I have a uh, Facebook page by the Wounded by War. Uh, that's where I spend the most of my uh, social media time. I opened up a Twitter account because my younger brother, who's seven years younger than me, told me like, yo, dog, you've got to get on this Twitter thing. And I'm like, I have, I still can't figure it out. I like your so, impression of a mid 20 something. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't sound anything like that, but it's kind of, uh, you know, that's what I, that's I, how he I, sounds in your head. I get it. My same with my sister. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I have a Twitter. It's, uh, at wounded by war and, uh, Instagram. Yeah. They're just not that fancy yet. So, well, Kevin, thanks for your time today, man. I appreciate you telling this story. Uh, I, I wholeheartedly agree that if you are open and honest, you're going to, reach people. Uh, people are going to be affected by the message. I've found that uh, there is strength and vulnerability and that if you're willing to be the first one to step out, that people will follow. So uh, I'm sure people will, will respond in kind after uh, hearing your story today. And we appreciate you just being on and, and sharing it with us. Hey, Garrett, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for the show, for what you do, um, getting the word out there. And thank you for the service you provide to the community and the country. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for listening to The Squad Room. If you like what you heard today, and if you got something out of the conversation, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. I read each and every one of them, and it really helps spread the word of the show. If you heard something here today that you know a friend or a loved one needs to hear, please tell them about the show. You can go to thesquadroom.net, and you can email this episode directly to that somebody. There's a lot of information that was in this show today that I think is very important. I love his quotes about you know, how your training needs to be at 100% all the time. But the perspective, more than anything, when he said that no matter how bad it got, I knew I was lucky. What a great perspective to have. It's easy for us in law enforcement to miss that perspective ourselves when we're in and out of these shifts and this hypervigilance that we need to maintain at work. And then um, we miss a lot of the good things. We miss so much of it. So I think Kevin's quote that even even when he's down and out and he thought he was going to die, he knew he was lucky. Uh, to keep up to date, you can, again, text the squadroom to 44222 directly from your phone. You get signed up for our mailing list. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the squadroom or on Facebook. 
Our job is tough, tougher than anything that can be ever put into a few words or just one podcast. But if you want to reach out, start a conversation, ask a question, reach me at Garrett, two R's, two T's, Garrett at thesquadroom.net. Lastly, I want to tell you that this episode is brought to you by Audible.com. With over 180,000 titles in their inventory, Audible has hundreds of audiobooks that apply to us. If it's a slow shift or a long commute, audiobooks are a great way to continue your education after you've listened to each episode of The Squadroom, of course. Hopefully, Kevin's book will be one of those audiobook titles here very soon. To get your free 30-day trial and free audiobook of your choice, go to audibletrial.com slash thesquadroom to sign up. Until next time, take care of each other and stay safe.